Hi, and welcome to Better Than New, the podcast to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. I'm your host, Gary Crenshaw, and in this episode, I follow up with my nephew, Nick, to find out how things are going with the 2002 Toyota Sequoia I helped him find almost a year ago. He'll tell us about some of the adventures he's been on with this 4x4 people mover, fill us in on a few do-it-yourself projects he's tackled on his own, and let us know what he loves and what isn't exactly perfect about this dog-hauling, off-roading SUV in just a moment. Now, if you've ever considered getting a first-generation Toyota Sequoia, this might be worth a listen. So hop in, buckle up, and let's go for a drive. Nick, it's great to have you back on Better Than New to catch up and to talk about the 2002 Toyota Sequoia you found almost a year ago. Before we get into that, I want to, uh, and you can say hello. Hey guys. Hi Gary. So in doing this show, there's two sort of big overarching themes that I try to follow. One is delivering joy and fun in terms of what people buy for a car or truck or SUV. The other part of that is value. And they kind of go hand in hand, but the joy and fun part is, you know, how do you use it? Does it fit your lifestyle? Does it really work for you? And the value part really is kind of a combination of features, performance, styling, and of course, the cost. What did it cost you? What does it cost you to maintain? And what does it cost to use it on a regular basis? But the cost. So you and I spent a lot of time basically talking and texting to help you sort through various SUVs that you were interested in buying. What did you start out thinking you would buy? I was looking at either a uh, 100 series Land Cruiser that a friend of mine owned and also searching Craigslist for, uh, it took a while to narrow it down, but third generation forerunners. Ended up coming across this Sequoia and realized that I hadn't done any homework on this model. Turns out it's sort of a two-wheel drive, four-wheel drive system is the same as that generation 4Runner. The chassis is the same as the Tundra. We we can get into specifics there, but it was kind of funny because it was Toyota's first attempt at making a family market full-size SUV, like a car for the suburbs. But the only parts that they had to do it were for like their workhorse trucks and and SUVs. So it's more of a robust vehicle than sort of the soccer mom image uh, might, might lead you to believe. Prior to the Sequoia, Toyota was manufacturing things like the T100, which was followed by the Tundra, the old 4x4 trucks with the 2.4 liter four cylinders that are still going today. Their their SUVs and trucks were all more geared towards performance than they were uh, trying to compete, I guess, with like the Ford Explorer or other cars that were, or SUVs rather, that were geared towards hauling families. This is their first attempt to try to provide something that an average American can bring their two or three kids around in. So you're talking suburban moms, suburban family type stuff. Okay. But it is a serious off-road type machine. Totally. I mean, it's got a locking center differential, which, you know, that is always a surprise to many people. The multi-mode four-wheel drive system, which is effectively all-wheel drive, is the same system as like the full-time four-wheel drive that you'd find on an 80 series Land Cruiser or a 100 series Land Cruiser. They updated it a little bit as time went on, like the modern day like GX, the Lexus model. You can now fiddle with the power dispersal between the front and the rear wheels, but it's still the same basic system. So yeah, it is a high-performing car on trails 
I haven't taken it rock crawling, but when you go off the highway, you can get places that I think uh, might be surprising. So tell me about the Sequoia you bought specifically, why you decided to get this particular one. So I really liked the fact that it was only owned by one family. And what they told me, which I believe them, was that it was their sort of highway vacation car. Uh, So it was a 2002 SR5, and I bought it in 2021. So it was a 19-year-old car that had 178,000 miles on it, which is still pretty young from a mileage perspective. They had thorough maintenance records. Uh, You know, I, I I think towards the end of, of their ownership, they had a friend that they, uh, they had do some maintenance on. One of the things in question there was, uh, the, the timing belt they replaced, or they told me they replaced the timing belt with an ASIN belt, which is OEM standard. It's a, a very good product. And a friend of mine and I actually popped off the, the camshaft cover, verified that it was a new timing belt. So felt good about that. Felt like, you know, I can trust them. There weren't too many hidden things that one can frequently encounter when buying a car. You touched on a couple of things there that I talk about quite a bit on the podcast, which is you do want to find, you know, one owner or minimal owners. You want to find a car that's been maintained. It was maintained by the family. They they took good care of it. Obviously, you know, in this particular case, if you're talking about your family vehicle, you're going to maintain it in a way unless you don't care about your family, you want them to all die or something in a flaming ball of fire, Um, you know, you're going to take care of it. So, and I'm not just talking like, oh yeah, we changed the oil once in a while, but this was a uh, older gentleman who Mm -hmm. owned it originally and he was the patriarch, the grandfather of the family. And he had it for 20, well, he bought it new. Yeah, he did. He bought it in 2002. They still had the original, um, not just like their original owner's manual, but the sort of plastic envelope thing that it came in. They had (laughs) uh, car wash coupons from 2002, uh, you know, with the date printed on there. That makes it official. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And uh, yeah, it was now his his son-in-law who was helping him. So his, you know, he had brought his daughter and the rest of their kids around in this thing for ages. And now the uh, son-in-law was helping him sell it. So to your point about him maintaining it for the family and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that was accurate. Okay. So it wasn't a 100 series Land Cruiser. It was not a forerunner. It was a Sequoia and you like it. So what do you like about it? First and foremost, I like the size. I like the space on the interior. And the space might be what keeps me driving Sequoias. The We can, you know, if we want to get into the third generation, the TRD off-road package looks very fun. Maybe that's a, a goal uh, for someday down the road. But the interior is fantastic. I have a huge dog and I have a huge uh, dog crate. Um, I like to haul around a full socket wrench set, uh, recovery gear, that kind of stuff in the back. It all fits really easily. I can still see out of the back window. Um, it's the first car I think I've ever sat in where if I sit in the back row, my knees don't touch the front seat. I'm about 6'2". Uh, the the front seats, the you know the driver seat and the passenger seat, they, they're captain's chairs basically so they've got like a real deal folding armrest and everything so it's extremely comfortable as far as the exterior goes like i mentioned before it's got the two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive multi-mode setting if you go into four low you can engage the uh, center locker and there's actually a modification i've been researching for the first generation sequoias that were built uh, i think it was between 2004 and 2007 
they can engage their center locker in four high. And there's a wiring modification you can do on the 2001 to 2003s that seems fairly simple. I'm exploring that option. I think that that would be kind of fun. (laughs) Totally unnecessary, but I think it would be kind of fun. Yeah. I see you smiling, so I know you're going to do it. Yeah, it's just it's on the checklist, and yeah. that's one that I'll I'll need somebody's help with because the, the only wiring job I've tried to do in this car was replacing the radio, and I had to take that apart probably ten times to try to get rid of the static whine. I still have not succeeded. Um, <laughs> from uh, just more like technical standpoints, the wheel well is a decent size. So right now I have a thirty-one point six inch. Uh, tires on there. It's at one inch larger than stock. Something we'll get to, I'm sure, at some point. I do have a lift, uh, a two inch lift on the car, uh, which allows for more steering space. Um, and it also allows one to go up to a, a 33 inch tire with minimal rub. So that's something that will happen down the line. But ultimately, it's a full size SUV. Which can be kind of funny on the trails when I am riding, you know, with a buddy who's got a Jeep, uh, the, my 80 series buddy, that thing's pretty darn big, but you know, Jeep, Forerunner, et cetera, it can be a, a little wider and maybe get some tree scratches on the sides, but it's a purpose-driven car. And I want to be able to go out on trails. I want to be able to go overland camping and I want to be able to bring my dog places and it, it serves all of my needs in that regard. So we know what you like about it. Is there anything that you don't like? Was there anything you look, you know, with the car that you go, you know, I wish it had this or I wish it was a little bit different this way? I've thought about uh, installing a uh, rear-facing camera. Parallel parking the thing, especially in Seattle, can be really challenging. Um, and that was the case with or without the cargo area kind of loaded with things. It's just a really long, it's like 19 feet long or something preposterous. Yeah, we're, we're about to go out and do some work on the rear brakes. And I'm looking at it going, is it going to fit in my garage? I don't know. I, so I'll, <laughs> I'll have to take the Thule box off. Uh, okay, of the yeah, top. Yeah. And I think I should, I've got an awning. I've got an ARB touring awning mounted on there as well. I don't think I'll have to touch that. So, so the, the size, I, mean, I guess visibility, uh, you know, I, I, I back into my parking spot every day at home and it's a tight fit. I can do it. But when you need to get into the really technical stuff, sometimes it's nice to have a spotter. So it might do a camera back there. One quirk that was a little irritating was I had a mystery leak in the cargo area. I think all cars, basically, you run into potential leak issues, and some leaks are car-specific. This case, it wasn't. It was a a simple fix that I made more complicated than it needed to be, and I I solved it with uh, some silicone. I don't really have anything that I don't This sounds like like. a stretch, man. There's really nothing you don't like about it. MPGs, May, that sure, is, well, yeah, but, yeah, right. You want what, it to be, you know, free gasoline. What is funny with the miles per gallon is I get asked, you know, how bad is it on gas? I get fourteen point four miles to the gallon when the car is not fully loaded. I get fourteen point three miles per gallon when the car is fully loaded. So it's fourteen, <laughs> no matter what happens okay. to it. That's funny. Yeah. Well, but you would expect that because it's a four point seven liter V eight. Yeah. Yeah, two hundred and what thirty horsepower? I think. Yes, I think two thirty or two thirty-five. Yeah, okay, and it's big. So mm-hmm. you didn't buy it to get good fuel economy. No. The fact that you can move a few people in it, put the dog in it, put all your gear in it, and go camping and do your stuff is the whole point of doing it. And fourteen point four is actually or fourteen point three. Sorry, yeah. uh, is better than what I would expect. I was thinking more like twelve. Yeah, I, so my buddy with the uh, the eighty series, he he gets ten. And, <laughs> okay, and there you go. My, the, the Sequoia, it's got a uh, 
a 26 gallon tank, which is enormous. Which you need though off road. I yeah. mean, you know, if you're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's I like keep, 300 miles of range. Yeah. And I keep wondering what, you know, well, at some point I'm going to talk more about uh, electric vehicles, but I, I start seeing these EV, like Jeep Cherokee advertised on television. I'm thinking, what, is there like a solar farm somewhere you're going to drive out to up in the Rockies? Where, where are you going to recharge that? Bring, the com- your, bring your generator? Yeah. The, the common critique that I hear from uh, various overland folks, they're, you know, on, on uh, social media platforms with large following, smart people who, who know what they're talking about, is they, they would be excited about the idea of having an EV, but they're just concerned about range. Right. Yeah, EVs have incredible amount of torque right at zero RPM. Perfect for rock crawling, but, you know, not perfect when there isn't any power. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, bit of a problem. And solar panels are heavy. If you want to add those, they are heavy and they get hot. You'll see some overland vehicles with them. You can put them on top of a rooftop tent maybe, uh, but it, they are very cumbersome. Okay, so let's talk about uh, any surprises. Were there any surprises like, oh, I didn't know it could do that. That's great. Or, oh, it does that. That's weird. Uh, so the front right brake likes to screech a little bit and I had somebody look at it and the previous owner just installed a little piece of uh, hardware like backwards. Like I think it's like one of the clips that holds oh, okay. the pad on. It's yeah, that's backwards. easy to do. Mm-hmm. I had a, a garage offer me, uh, suggest I fix it and it was a $500 bill. So I passed on doing that. So I just have a little screech. I'll, I'll fix it at some point. Um, there are natural points of wear and tear that I think I, I would have noticed. One, if I'd gone around and dug underneath the, the vehicle, this is the thing with this car. This is the first car that I've ever tried to maintain on my own before. So a lot of this is just a learning process. I, I wouldn't have known anyway. So the power steering, it's got a little bit of a leak. I have had a, uh, a Toyota uh, service rep tell me that he would let this thing go for another 100,000 miles. And his words were, until it's puking fluid out of the bottom. <laughs> That's kind of what I've told you. Yeah. So it's sort of like, yeah, it's it's sort of like a cockroach. It's going to be around at the nuclear winter. So, sure. <laughs> you know, you know it's, it'll drip a little bit. So what? Uh, yeah, move on. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not terribly worried about that. I keep an eye on it. Um, I think that there is some sort of coolant leak, but I filled it to, to its, uh, maximum actually overfilled it. And then I had to pump some of it out of there in an O'Reilly's parking lot a little while ago. Learning Um, moment. mm -hmm. Yeah. Learning moment. (laughs) Yeah. But I filled that, uh, like a month ago and I haven't noticed any loss of fluid. So just little things like that, that, for a, a 20 year old car that you just have to uh, pay attention to, but there there's been nothing, um, no catastrophic failures or, or there's, there's nothing that, that I'm going, Oh my gosh, I have to fix this right now. Yeah. Just, just ma- maintenance things. It's good to hear. And, and understanding that it is a 20 year old car. And when you bought it, it had almost 180,000 miles mm-hmm. on it. I tell people all the time that, Getting a car that's 20 years old and has over 100,000 miles, I mean, 100,000 miles at 20 years old is super low mileage. Mm. Now, people don't look at it that way. They think, it's 100,000 miles. Yeah, but if it was maintained and kept in good running condition, people use it. That's okay. I mean, you want to use your car because if you let it sit, other bad things can happen over yep. time. Lots of things can gum up and rust and stick in place, and it's not a good thing. Uh, but... There's not a huge downside to buying an older car. There tends to be a lot of upside. Not only is the price inexpensive for the purchase, but again, if it's been maintained, as long as you bought something that was a good vehicle to begin with, 
typically they don't have a lot of problems unless it's a known issue with the car. Like if, no, for example, if that 4.7 liter V8 had some sort of known issue, then that could be a problem, but it really doesn't change the timing belt, change the oil. You know, occasionally, I guess you might have something fail like a alternator, some sort of wear item, but eh, not really. They kind of go forever. The thing to pay attention to with Sequoias is their uh, their lower ball joints. That was the uh, pre two thousand four. That was their the thing that uh, that that was recalled. Um, the way you fix that for a pre two thousand four is you buy two thousand four spindles and two thousand four ball joints and do that whole replacement. And that's something that is on my to do list. I have been inspecting the ball joints frequently. I, I had uh, Le Schwab take a look at them. They are old. They do not appear to be in a situation where they're about to fall apart either. So doing the spindles, ball joints, uh, I have some aftermarket lower control arms I'm looking at. Anyway, these are things for yeah, the future. Yeah, but no big stuff that you have to do to no. the car. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the adventures you've been on. You've taken a couple, you took a long drive in this. Didn't, didn't yes. you? Yes. Know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, longest one that we've done was we drove from Seattle to, uh, directly east to Bozeman, Montana. And then after that, we drove just straight down into the middle of Colorado and driving through the entirety of Wyoming. I, I don't ever want to do that again. We had sustained winds, uh, in the high 30 miles an hour. And I think, I think the gusts were like 60 miles an hour or stronger. So I, I have my Thule box on there, and I measured it two days ago, and I think the car is exactly eight feet tall. That's a lot of space for a 60-mile-an-hour gust of wind to hit. I couldn't believe the Thule box stayed on. I thought for sure that thing was going to fly off, but it, it did. It made it. Wow. It was okay. There was one moment going over a hill where I felt the car get air underneath, and just one of the wheels just hung in the air for a, a half-second long enough that made me you know really uncomfortable but it, it came back down we're all good and, you know when it's fully loaded it's like six thousand pounds <laughs> yeah but still i didn't want i don't want to do that again we'll find another way to go back to colorado it won't be wyoming okay so you had the big colorado trip what other sort of adventures i know you've been doing some off-road yeah so there are a few places in uh, eastern Washington that we've spent some time driving through. Actually, some places in the Snoqualmie area that we've just kind of done joy rides through. Both have been lessons in how to drive off-road. First thing that is not related to the Sequoia, just related to driving on dirt, gravel, snow, whatever. Airing down is so unbelievably significant. I drive with a PSI of 35 when I'm on the street. And I go down to like just like 22 if I'm on uh, snow or dirt, gravel, you know, whatever. It makes such a difference. But so right now I have all terrains. I have BFG KO2s. They're very good all terrain tires. Airing down 10 to 12 psi makes a, I can't even describe it. If you're curious, go do a trail, keep them fully inflated, then do it again and drop 10 psi. It's going to blow your mind. It's been interesting learning how to uh, navigate through some technical driving parts of trails, whether that's going on an incline. Uh, I've had some steep declines. I've had uh, looking down, like not a cliff per se, but I've, I've put myself in situations that I've never experienced before while driving. And it's it's been a lot of fun learning how to even just aim the tire at certain things. If you're squeaking through something that's narrow, you don't want to put your tire in a place where the sidewall is going to get cut up as you go past it. 
you want to try to roll over that thing. That's a little counterintuitive for me, but it's, you know, just things that you start to pick up. Um, now I'm getting more just into the overlanding aspect. You, you're going all geeky on me here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I could save some things for, for later on. Um, well, the, okay. So as you talk about this, what, one of the things I want to just kind of circle back to is the whole idea of fun and joy. I don't know if it was really a, an overarching reason for you to buy this vehicle to go do a lot of off-roading, but now that you've done it, it's become something you look at and go, I, I got to keep doing this. I like doing this. Yes, that's that's accurate. You know, I always enjoyed hiking and mountain biking and stuff like that, but my concept of driving off-highway was more so a dirt road to get to a trailhead rather than taking your vehicle somewhere on public land and just sort of finding a place to go camp. It's definitely opened up a new way to explore the great outdoors, which is great because my legs are beat up and my dog is technically lame. And so this is a, a good way for he and I to go get out and do some adventuring without having to limp our way back home. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm really glad that you're getting into that. You have a vehicle that's capable of doing that. It may not have the short wheelbase and the, the skinny width that some vehicles have, but you can go a lot of places in that, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the modifications you've done. You've done a few things. Mm-hmm. Suspension, headlights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have more things that are on the, the menu at some point. but the, Of course you do. The big ones <laughs> that I've done lately. Uh, I, I installed a two-inch ARB Old Man Emu suspension lift kit probably a month or so ago. And that process was uh, fun. It was difficult. It was a, a learning experience. Saved a ton of money. So I've never attempted anything like that before. I had the help of a good buddy, my friend who owns the uh, 80 series. Um, What I've come to learn about cars is the concepts around maintenance are very simple. They're orchestrated in a complex manner, but there are some principles. I mean, to, to say that it's just nuts and bolts is oversimplifying a little bit. But this is an accessible thing to anyone that has an interest and and has time to maintain on their own. So putting in the OME uh, lift, it was a ton of fun. Uh, There, let's see, here's the Nitro Charger Sports in the rear. And so there's, you know, the strut and the coil springs, they sit separately in the rear. In the front, it's coil over spring. That was funny. You know, I I got to learn about O'Reilly's. They offer... um, you, you basically buy, so they have some things to rent. Well, you buy it, and then when you return it, you get your money back. You're talking about tools. That's right, yeah, tools, yeah, uh, to do certain parts of this job. They also might not have the part you need, so sometimes you rent three or four tools thinking that it's going to solve your problem, and you end up just cutting through <laughs> your upper control arm to, to get the OEM one off of there, which that's what we ended up doing, that, and had some some fun photos from that. But all in all, the estimate that I had from uh, Mule Expedition Outfitters, the install I think was going to be around fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars. Instead, it was about nineteen hours of labor on on my end, uh, which was worth every penny to me. It yeah. turned out to be a learning moment, but you also saved yourself literally nineteen hundred dollars. Yes, saved a lot of money, and that's kind of been the theme of just doing things. Just an aside, labor costs. I never really looked when I would turn, when I bring my car somewhere and have them work on it. I never really looked at the breakdown of what it costs to pay for a part and pay for labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Toyota labor is one hundred seventy five dollars an hour. Yeah, here in the Seattle area. Yeah. yeah, 
That is astonishing. And there's a great, yeah, there's yeah. a well-renowned um, place in Seattle called Greg's Japanese Auto. I think they're 165 an hour, so they're just trying to under, undercut while also maintaining a, an exorbitant cost for their labor. Well, it's expensive to live here. Uh, right. It's a spendy market, right? Uh, sadly, a lot of that money doesn't actually go to the mechanic. It goes to uh, the shop. I tell people all the time on the podcast, if you can do your own work or you think you might want to, give it a try. And one of the things I, I got to say right now, you are my favorite student. You may be my only student because my, my kids don't want to learn anything. But you're my favorite student because you just dive in and do it. You're not holding yourself back like, oh, I don't know if I should do this. It's sort of like, I'm going to do this and I don't know what I'm doing. But that is one of the best ways to learn is to just do it. Like you were over changing oil the other day when we stopped off at uh, your mom's place. Mm -hmm. And what was funny was you learned something in the process. You left yeah. the gasket <laughs> off the drain plug when you put it back in and you were like, is that going to be a problem? I'm like, well, is it leaking? Did you torque it to proper spec? You're like, Yes. But you do those things once, yeah. and then you're not going to do it again. Oh, I no, yeah. So I had to go back and read. I had to go to the store, buy the right gasket, because the one I had was old. It had probably been reused. Yeah, uh, it looked kind of, kind of kind of weak. Yeah. It was in poor shape. So I had to do it. I had to do that job again, and I'm. I will never forget. I've learned what to look for, and I won't make that mistake again. And it, it is so easy to change oil. I used to think that this was some big, complicated thing. Some cars actually make it hard by where they put the filter. Mm. That can happen, you know, some like the Mini Cooper that I had. The filter was in a really weird place down a, in a bunch of wires and hoses. It always would kind of leak when you took it out, so you had to put rags under it, and it was annoying. But at the end of the day, you get a chance to get under the hood and look at things. I have found other problems, and you look at it and go, oh, I need to deal with that. Yeah. I wouldn't have known, but if you take it to the local you know, cheapy lube shop, he could have some kid there who just, you know, it's the first time they're working on a car and they're working on yours and they could, you know, spin the filter on sideways. They could over torque the drain plug. I find it personally better to do the work yourself because you find little issues and you prevent problems in the future. I also feel a lot more confident in case of an emergency if there's anything that, that goes wrong. If this is, if I've, if I'm at least familiar with like that region of the car, I'm much more equipped to be able to fix something on the side of the road or, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, whereas before, you know, I would look just opening up the hood of the car would sort of be a foreign language to me. Over time, I've had like phone calls from you in the middle of uh -huh. nowhere. Yeah. Hey, Gary, the car is doing something weird. Yeah, it's making what is this it? noise. Yeah. And, <laughs> and a lot of times it's like, is it, well, is it leaking? Is it smoking? Is it doing anything strange? No. Ah, uh, soldier on. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Rattles are bad. I know rattles are bad. Yeah. Oh, you came over to check your suspension. Oh, yeah. a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Yeah. So I don't know what happened there, but the uh, nut that was holding the top uh, end of my upper control arm on my right side had become loose, and I drove all the way back from Bend, Oregon, wondering what the heck this noise was. Yeah, the clunk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you diagnosed it in. I think maybe it was two minutes. <laughs> And <laughs> <laughs> well, no, what I said, we, we went out just for a drive around a cul-de-sac and we kind of drove in a figure eight and I could hear the suspension shifting. And I thought, well, something's loose. And it was a big bolt. <laughs> yeah. So I've just, I've cranked that you thing found on it. there. I'm glad you found it. I've been trying to find this, uh, that crow foot 19 millimeter thing. 19 millimeter, by the way, people, if you find a crow foot, you know, with the little uh, clip, the little tooth that really holds it on there, buy it. If you have a Toyota, buy it because... 
I have looked at every local shop and can't find it. I'm just going to end up buying it online. Yeah, that with one of those torque spec wrenches is going to be your friend. Yeah. Uh, I did my uh, I did a bunch of the 180,000 mile service. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. What was that? So that was learning how to basically the drain and fill process. So that was mm. transmission. Uh, that was the transfer case. It was the front and rear differentials. The front differential, actually, that bolt or uh, the drain plug was rusted on there. And I actually had to take that one into Toyota to have them just blast it off of there. But that was another learning moment where, oh my gosh, this is so simple. All you need is time. You need time. You need a couple specific tools, but we're talking about two wrenches and a couple of socket wrench uh, heads that you got to go buy at the local store. Outside of that, really all you're paying for is the fluid. And Right. Uh, yeah. There's no parts. Right. Maybe a gasket for the sure. drain plug, but that's sure. it. Sure. You, but you can buy, you know, your, your local dealership is going to have a little kit that is like gasket replacement kit for this service. So for your rear differential, here are the gaskets and, you know, they overcharge you or whatever, but it's five bucks. You do um, it every 60,000 miles. So who cares? Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so got to learn how to do that. Uh, made, you know, plenty of mistakes along the way. Had, had a buddy of mine, he like suffered an injury trying to torque that front differential. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, when you've been defeated, don't, right. don't yeah. press it. But ultimately, they're very simple processes. I mean, you pop off the fill plug, you pop the drain plug, you let the whole thing drain, then you fill it up again, and that's it. You're good to go. There are a couple little... This is that whole learning moment thing. Some people will drain the oil on a transmission or a differential before checking to make sure that the fill plug can be removed. Because if the fill plug is stuck and you've drained all the oil out, well, you're not driving that to the local auto parts store to get a replacement plug. You know, you're calling a tow truck. Yeah. So that's that's one thing. But like you said, it's still a simple process. Mm-hmm. You just have to know the steps, the order of the steps to make sure that you don't make a mistake. And all of that stuff is typically, you can find it on YouTube. Yes. You can find it on a forum. It's out there or it's in your repair manual. I learned that lesson that you've just referenced, luckily, with the drain plug being stuck on there. Because I took the fill plug off. And I was all happy about it. And then we couldn't get that drain plug off. And I was just thinking like, man, what if I had not done it in this order? You know, one thing that is that is nice when you're draining something, make sure you take the fill plug off first. The air will enter in from the top. It yes. makes it drain a lot more quickly. I just lucked out by chance that that order of operations occurred there. But yeah, we're going to do, uh, my significant other and I, we're going to do her upcoming big service just on our own. So she's got a a Toyota Camry. It's 2014. It's awesome. It's very low to the ground. And so the Sequoia, although it being enormous, can pose some problems in specific situations. It also provides a ton of working room. I can lay down there. I'm I'm 6'2", 190 pounds, a big person. And I have no problem sliding underneath that car. I have no problem reaching into the engine bay, whatever. The Camry, we're going to have to get kind of creative with how to get that thing up up off the ground. You're going to have to put it on a lift or something. Or, yeah, yeah, researching that now. But uh, yeah, it's it's cool. I feel confident in uh, lending a hand with things like this now for other people. Which is really, really interesting because two years ago, three years ago, you would have been, what's a wrench? 100%. Yeah. But that just goes to show you how quickly people can pick it up. Yeah. 
if you're motivated. Yes. And again, uh, you know, if, if you're listening to the podcast and you're thinking, I don't know if I want to change my own oil. I don't know if I want to do my own brake pads. I don't know if I want to try some of these things to, to work on my car because I'm, I'm not really sure I can do it. You can do it. You can definitely do it. Yeah. And Gary mentioned walkthroughs on YouTube. There are many out there and there are some auto companies that put out seven minute walkthrough videos that show you what to do step by step. They're really helpful. They're very clear. I have been studying two of them in anticipation of doing the breaks this week. And yeah, the resources are out there for you to teach yourself. So knowing what you know now about your purchase and being through a year of ownership and all these adventures and things you've been on, would you buy it again? Yeah, totally. And I would definitely buy it exactly when I bought it because the prices now to acquire one are are (laughs) two times what they were when I I got it. Yeah, you paid what, $6,500? Yes. Yeah, before taxes and all that, it was $6,500. It's insane. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing them listed regularly. Same, Same model, same generation and everything. Seeing them listed between thirteen and fifteen on average, and up to like twenty two thousand, it's ridiculous. But that was luck. I mean, I did my homework, and I, I struck when the iron was hot, which is something that we talked about a lot on the previous episode of Be Ready. Be but, ready to buy once you find something you want. So yeah, would I buy it again? Yeah, I, I absolutely would. And again, I just the the space is really hard to beat. I was in love with the idea of a Land Cruiser, and now with the fun little modifications that you can do, you know, if I do, if I pull off this center, the locking center differential modification, someday maybe add like a rear locker, and then someday graduate to the the third gen, what have you. The space is really difficult to beat. It is nice to have so much room on the interior of the car. And I, again, 90-pound dog, and I carry uh, seven gallons of water in case he gets thirsty. I carry his dog food. It is really nice to be able to have absolutely everything you need in the car. Well, I'm glad you're happy with it. It's been fun to watch you go through this process and enjoy the car, but also learn about the maintenance and taking care of it. Uh, I did want to ask you one last question. In terms of how much money you've saved, not just on the cost of the car, because I know you got a vehicle that you should have maybe paid 10 or 12 for yeah. in, in today's market. You got it for half that. But in terms of how much money you've saved doing your own maintenance, we're we talking like, you know, a thousand bucks, 3000 bucks. What do you think you're at? Uh, a ballpark is probably around $5,000, but it, it could be a lot higher. I, you know, I mentioned earlier just with the suspension install, I think it was probably about $2,000 in savings just with that job, but saving money on the, the 180,000 mile service. You can save one like a thousand dollars for that, right? It is crazy. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I should it go is, dig it is up crazy. the old quote. It is crazy. Yeah. I've absolutely have saved, I would say at least $5,000 in just a year of owning it. We'll probably hit 10,000 by the, the end of 2022. That's awesome. Yeah, good for you. So I got to say, it's really rewarding to see Nick still enjoying his Sequoia a whole year after I helped him find it. It's also fun to watch him get into four-wheeling and tackling do-it-yourself projects on his SUV. In fact, right after we wrapped up our recording session, Nick and I went out to the garage for another DIY project to replace his rear brake pads and rotors. And yes, even with its new lift kit, the Sequoia actually fit in my garage, but only after he removed the rocket box. I mean, that thing is big. So if you need a rugged, reliable, full-size SUV to haul your family, pets, and gear at a reasonable price, the first-generation Toyota Sequoia is a great option to consider. 
In the meantime, thanks for listening to this week's show, and be sure to join me next week for another podcast episode to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. Until then, I'm Gary Crenshaw, this is Better Than New, and I'm really glad you came along for the ride.